Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. We are in a sermon series. This is the last Sunday. This, time, this series is called Good Things. We've been looking at First and Second Timothy. We come to the end of the series. We've been looking at thing, good things that are ours, true about God, and good things that are ours through our faith in Christ. Last series, last sermon of that series is this morning. This is the final passage. Well, there's a few verses left, but they're really just some parting remarks. This really is the final word from 2 Timothy, the final words from the Apostle Paul. As mentioned previously, this is the last letter. The older Apostle Paul is writing to the younger uh, Timothy in order to pass the baton of leadership from one generation to the next. So here we have it, the last uh, sort of swan song from the Apostle, the older uh, to the younger. And what I want to focus on is really just the, the last two verses. Again, appreciate the way. This is really the last... It's the last will and testament. Here it is, the last few words that the great apostle, founder of the, the missionary to the church, here are his last words. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And what I observe about this passage is it tells us the apostle's perspective about life, about death, and about eternity. Those are the three big things. We learn three things. There are three descriptors of life. He describes life as a, a, a struggle that he fights in, as a race that he runs, and as a promise that he's kept. He describes death in two ways, as, a, as a, the final drop of a drink that's been poured out. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And he describes death as a departure, almost as a plane to catch or a train to catch. The time for my departure has come. So two descriptors of death and one description of eternity, an award to be received. And we're going to look at this unique perspective that the apostle offers. Three things about life, two things about death, one thing about eternity, and that's going to help us appreciate sort of the themes we've thought about throughout this letter, themes of endurance and perseverance. So let's jump right in. A perspective about life. Life, according to the Apostle Paul, is a struggle to fight in, it's a race to run, and it is a promise to keep. Maybe you know the song Peaceful Easy Feeling by the Eagles, Don Henley, written in about 19, oh, circa 1980. Um, I'm becoming increasingly aware that my cultural references are a little bit dated. Uh, it's a great song, probably the first song I learned on guitar. My hunch is that Stu Welch could probably play Peaceful, Easy Feeling for us if we really wanted uh, for an offertory. We're going to hold it. It's a great song for guitar. It's a bad expectation for life, right? The idea that life is going to be marked by peace and ease and guided by our feelings. Not so, says the Apostle Paul. Life is neither peaceful, it is a struggle. It's a struggle for all people. Christians should not think, oh, my life is so hard. Christians. Everybody's life is a struggle. Like, we're not unique. It's just our struggle is against certain things. Next Sunday's baptism. And in our baptismal promises, we'll hear, do you promise to fight against sin, death, and the world, or sin, the devil, and the world? Yeah, your life is a conflict. Following Christ is a conflict. Get used to it. It's true for everybody, but it's true for us as well. There's no season in which Christian discipleship becomes easy. It's always a conflict. Christian ministry or life in general requires endurance. Uh, see the past uh, two sermons on this subject. Timothy, run the race. Uh, the image of life and ministry being an endurance race, not a, not a sprint, but a marathon. 
a conflict to fight, a race to run, and finally, a promise to keep. Not feelings, but, but a, I've kept the faith. Now, it's interesting, there's a couple of ways you could interpret that phrase, I've kept the faith. What's the apostle mean? Does he mean that I have guarded? Right? So remember, that's some, one of the encouragements from the apostle, guard the content of the message. Is that what's meant here? Maybe. I've kept the faith, meaning I've faithfully received it and now I faithfully pass it on. That's one possible application. Does it mean that the apostle has kept his own faith? Remember that you heard the encouragement as we began, fan your faith into flame. Right? So there's an idea that faith, is, faith in God and love for his church is something that we have to maintain. Is that what he means? Or does he simply mean he was a faithful person? He kept his promises. Was he as, did he achieve what uh, George Washington aspired to? Washington wrote this, I hope I shall possess firmness and virtue enough to maintain what I consider the most enviable, enviable of all titles, the character of an honest man. Did he guard the content? Did he maintain his own faith? Or was he simply a man who kept his promises? How about all three? He kept the faith. So as we, again, think of the Apostle Paul. He's sitting in, the, in prison. The time of his martyrdom is coming to a, a rapidly approaching. And here's how he assesses his life. His life is not assessed by the peace and the ease and the feelings that he has had. Nothing wrong with peaceful, easy feelings. But that's not how he assesses his life. His life is assessed by the struggles that he's fought in, by the race, endurance that he's shown, and by the promise that he has kept. A peaceful, easy feelings makes for a great song. It doesn't make for a great life. A great life is made through struggle, endurance, and faithfulness. And that's how the apostle assesses his life. Three things about life, two things about death. Look at how the apostle describes his death. For I am being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure has come. Those are two descriptions of his imminent death. I want to make two observations. I want you to note that as the apostle describes his death, he describes it as a drink that's being poured out. Right? So his life is, you know, vision, in vision as you're born, you have eight fluid ounces. At 45, you have four fluid. It, it keeps on pouring out to the last drop, right, is, is the, the moment of death, right? The, my, my drink has been poured out. Do you know the name Chuck Feeney? Any nods of heads, Chuck Feeney. I'm not surprised that no one knows Chuck Feeney. Feeney, he made it his business to be unknown. Chuck Feeney was one of the most wealthy men in the world. He's part of that greatest generation, World War II. Uh, he served over in Europe and as the war came to a uh, close, he started a business selling goods to travelers. And that business that he started eventually became the duty-free shops in airports. And Chuck Feeney became not just a like a billionaire many times over, one of the, like, up there with the wealthiest people of all. You, maybe you've heard of the phrase, die broke. That originated with Chuck Feeney. He actually articulated, my goal in life is to die broke. And in 2019, I can't remember the exact date, but he had mission accomplished. He established some charitable organization, and in the mid part of 2019, he wrote a check for $250 million to Cornell University, and with that, shut the door. He was bankrupt. He had died broke. I know nothing about his faith, uh, but his approach, uh, to, his approach to dying broke is really 
coincides what you find in the Gospels. He died broke. Jesus died broke. Um, he died materially. He was broke. Uh, you know, they, they gambled for the clothes off his back. Right? He had nothing left. But not just financially broke. Jesus was, uh, in the Gospels, it says that Jesus lay, loved them to the last full measure. What's that mean? He loved them to the last full drop. Right? Think of the giving tree. It's a horribly depressing children's story. You know the giving tree, Shel Silverstein, is about the tree that keeps on giving? Oh, man. That's a tree that gave everything. And the Apostle Paul, that's what he describes his life as. My life is, is been poured out. It's been poured out in service to God and love to one another. And so here's the point. It's not only Jesus' life that was poured out. It's not only the Apostle Paul's life that was poured out. It's our lives. Jesus reveals our calling. Our life is lived in the pouring out of it. I remember Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose. Whoever loses his life will save it. Every time you come to communion, you're going to hear these words. This is the blood of Christ shed for you, poured out for you, the last drop shed for you. And that is not just a reminder of what Jesus did for you. It's a reminder of what you should do for those around you to pour out your life in love and service to die broke. That's the first way he describes his death. Second way he describes his death as a departure. Uh, the time for my departure has come. Now, I know there's no trains and planes and automobiles in the ancient Near East, but that's the type of language you and I would use to catch a plane. Well, time to pack up my bags. The time for my departure has come. What I find interesting is that there is a perfectly good word for death. You can find it all over the Bible. But that's not the word that's used here. The word that is used here is the word departure. And if you take a look at our, our worship and our prayer book and the Bible in general, you'll find a little bit of bashfulness about using the word death. Think of our, um, our funeral service. May, the soul and this, may his soul and the souls of all the dead people? No. May the souls of all the departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Why not say dead people? We, say, we don't say it, we say departed in our prayers of the people. We're going to say, we're going to give thanks for the life of all the departed. We're not going to give thanks to the life for dead people. Are we just afraid of the D word? Are we just a little, we don't want to say it, makes it too real? Kind of like Voldemort? No. <laughs> Christians of all people, we are, we are clear-sighted. We know that here today, gone tomorrow, like the glory of the flowers of the field. Like we, are, we are not... Um, upset or surprised by the brevity of this mortal life. The problem with the word death is it's just too final. Death implies that they, they have ceased to exist and the person who has got departed, departed on a plane has not ceased to exist. They're just gone from sight. They're in some place else. And that is true for the faithful departed in Christ. They have not ceased to exist any more than a person who's gotten the plane has ceased to exist. They're out of sight. They're in some place different, but they're not, they have not ceased to exist. They are simply departed. Through the mercy of God, they rest with Christ. That's what we believe about the faithful departed. 
And that is why you see this hesitancy to say that, to use that, the D word. And so that's how the, the apostle describes his death as a departure. The sting has been taken away. The king has crushed the curse of death. So it's just a departure. And finally, as a drink that's poured out. Two ways to describe death. Now finally, one way to describe eternity. Look at the passage with me. Again, we're in the last three verses, six, seven, and eight. Henceforth, the only thing left for me, my life has been struggle, conflict, etc. My death will be the final pouring out and a departure. Now eternity. What awaits me in eternity? How would you describe eternity? Most of us would describe eternity as, well, uh, it will be good. I will be with God, and that's kind of it. But note how the Apostle Paul, note what captures his imagination as the time for his departure draws near. It's not just that he will be with God, but in some way he will win God's approval or receive God's approval. He will receive the crown of righteousness. And there's something that happens with a good child. Uh, when we praise our children, uh, we try to be diligent and complimenting and praising our children. And every once in a while, we will know it hit the mark. And, you know, because our, our kids cannot help the disguise, just cannot disguise the pleasure that they feel of being praised. And that's true for all of us. All of us delight in being praised by the one, by the ones, by the coaches, by the teachers, by the parents that you were created to praise. And that's what the apostle anticipates. The crown, the white robe, the accolade. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come, enter your master's joy. That's what he anticipates. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. He writes it better than I could. Lewis writes in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child as a good child as its great and undisguised pleasure at being praised. Isn't that true? A child delights in being praised. We delight in being praised. Every once in a while, you get a compliment from a boss, from an employer, from a parent. And that passing thought of our delight in being praised by the people who are meant to praise us, that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen in eternity when you and I, beyond all hope, nearly beyond all belief, learned at last that we have pleased him whom we are created to please. And that is what captures the apostle's imagination as his departure arrives, not just that he will be with God, but somehow that he will please God, as Lewis continues, that he will be a real ingredient in God's divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father delights in their son. It seems impossible, a weight of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but yet it is so. And that is how the apostle describes eternity, with the hope of the divine Accolade, the crown of righteousness. Well done, good and faithful. Let me summarize. 
In this passage, this final swan song from the Apostle Paul, he describes his life with three images, a race, a fight, and a promise. He describes his death as a departure, not a final period. And he describes eternity not just as being with God, but finding approval from God. And this perspective, if we have this perspective on life, it will lead to the type of life that we find throughout this letter and especially summarized in verse 5. Take a quick look. As for you, you be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work. These are the themes that we have found throughout this letter. You, Timothy, you press on, you keep your head, you keep the faith. And here's how. Here's how this perspective leads to this type of life. The person who has the perspective on life, that it is not a peaceful, easy feeling, but life is instead marked by conflict, endurances, endurance, and fidelity. That person will not be dazzled by anything. Riches come and go. Fame comes and go. Peace comes and goes. Ease comes and goes. Don't be dazzled by anything. Further, the person who has this view on death, that it is simply a departure, the catching of a plane, that person will not be troubled by anything. Do not be troubled by anything. Finally, the person who has this view of eternity, of the victor's crown, the divine accolade, well done, good and faithful servant. That person will not be moved by anything, but they will press on towards the goal. And so Timothy's, Paul's final encouragement to Timothy may have been just this. Let nothing dazzle you. Let nothing trouble you. Let nothing move you. Instead, you, you, you and me, you, Timothy, you be sober-minded, endure suffering, do your work, fulfill your ministry, and Timothy, and Christ the King congregation. And when the time for departure arrives, we may say with the, the apostle, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now the only thing left for me is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me 